Hello and welcome to Movie Theater Time Machine. Very special episode. Uh, we don't get to do these too, too often, but we hope to entertain you. Of course, you know me, I'm Nick. I'm joined by one of Hollywood's probably greatest legends and one of the writers of my absolute, two of my favorite movies of all time, The Jaws and the Jerk, Mr. Carl Gottlieb. Carl, how you doing, man? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm very, very, very good. And I really appreciate your time, especially with this show, to be able to do everything. And out of, you know, what I assume is your busy day to try to uh, give us a little t- your time to entertain. Um, if you ever heard of us before, I mean, Movie Theater Time Machine, we're the show where four of us get together and, you know, we call it keeping it real to real. Um, I want to start off and I really want to ask you about, you know, you being a writer. And one of my favorite stories, actually one of my favorite movies ever, was the one that you wrote with Steve Martin, The Jerk. And can you tell me, like, what is your writing process like, especially when it first starts? And especially that movie, because I'm really curious. Well, I've noticed that there are uh, two kinds of writers in the world. Okay. Uh, there are habitual writers, like Stephen King or George Simenon, who wake up in the morning and have to write. they got to write a thousand pages before lunch. I mean, they just, every day, a thousand words, I'm sorry, yeah. a thousand and they, they write every day, and they wind up with a sizable body of work. The other kind of writers are deadline writers, like myself, and I only write when I'm getting paid. Mm. It's usually because either I need money or I need the check or, you know, the payment is due and not, you know, not until I turn in pages. So then I make ever-decreasing concentric circles around the keyboard till there's no place else left to go, and I begin the painful and lonely job of writing. as. George Bernard Shaw said, somebody asked him, do you like writing? <coughs> and he said, I like having written. Having written. Having written. The process of writing is painful and lonely and has no rewards to it outside of looking at words on paper. Yeah. Doesn't, didn't Woody Allen say the same thing? I think anybody who writes yeah. and gets well for it has that moment when you go, Jesus, to my really need to, you know, do I, do I need to write? I, I know I need to write to get this check, so I'll write this, and then we'll see what else there is to do. What about with the movie The Jerk? And I've heard a legend story, uh, this is my wife Kaz, by the way, here. Kaz, how are you? Yeah. Uh, I've heard the story with The Jerk that you sat with Steve Martin, and you tried to make up a story about growing up, and this was, was it true that that's Partly based on how you grew up, too? Um, no. Oh, okay. Uh, I'll give you the origin story for the jerk, okay? Okay. Uh, Steve was just beginning to hit it big. He had done a huge, well-received show at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in Los Angeles. 2,500 people showed up. They were wearing arrow through the head. They had white suits. They were, you know, they had bunny ears. They were doing all the Steve Martin shtick. So it was clear... He was catching on with the general public. Mm. So David Picker, who was president of Paramount Pictures at that time, signed Steve to a three-picture deal of any script of his own choosing. He could write his own script. And uh, Paramount would finance a short subject on film that they would distribute with one of their hits, like I think it was Grease that they were going to put it out with, and give it to the exhibitors for nothing. So they 
show it and movie audiences would get a chance to see Steve in the theater as a, as a movie personality. So and that was a good idea. And I was going to direct the short, which I did. And we were subsequently nominated for an Academy Award for The Absent-Minded Waiter. Um, but then we had to write a script. And by that time, we, we had a little writer's room at Paramount. And they you know, Two selectric typewriters, a stack of yellow pads, a jar full of pencils, everything we needed. And we just sat there looking at each other for two weeks, you know, trying to figure out what, because, you know, it's kind of an absolute ternary, right? Whatever you want. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. I don't know. So we're sitting there and Steve says, you know, there's a line in my act that always gets a laugh. It's a saver. I mean, even when the act is doing well, if I'm bombing, if it's a, you know, shitty little club with eight people, this line always gets a laugh. I said, you know, what is it? He said, I was born a poor black child. So we looked at each other and said, huh, what if you were? Okay. So at that point, we said, wow. And we started writing. And the, the first scenes with the family and the bayou, and they just fell out of the typewriter. They just you know came naturally. And then we were on our way writing that script. Then subsequently, Mike Eisner and Barry Diller came over to run Paramount uh, from ABC Television. And as always happens with a change of regime at a major studio, they shit-canned all the previous projects. Right. So, uh, so um, Steve's management went to Paramount, the new, to the new Paramount management, management said, okay, we get it. You don't want to make us this particular Steve Martin script. Tell you what, give us the short subject and this script that you don't like and you're not going to make. Give us those outright. Let us own them. And we will let you out of your commitment for two more screenplays of two or $300,000 apiece. So the studio said, well, you know, sure. We don't want to make the movie. We don't want to be on the hook for another six or $700,000 in script development costs for so, yes, you, you can do that. So Steve and, and uh, David Picker and Steve's management kind of walked across town to Universal and said, hey, you want to do this movie? And Universal said, you bet, for a budget. And they had a budget, and they rewrote it with Michael Elias. I wasn't available. Oh. So uh, uh, when the smoke and dust clear, it was a Universal production. The final screen credits are... Story by Steve Martin and Carl Gottlieb. Screenplay by Steve Martin, Carl Gottlieb, and Michael Elias. And because he, Michael had been an old collaborator of Steve's in the stand-up comedy days. He yeah. trusted him. He's a funny guy. I knew him from his work on Head of the Class. So, uh, you know, it all, it all worked out. That's the origin of the jerk script. Who came up with can hating? I say that a lot because I have to wash out the some cans, and I, it's hard, and I hate them, and I'm like, I hate these cans. Yeah, that was, uh, that was, uh, you know, I mean, I remember the other, the uncredited writer on that script, because he, he was a, didn't satisfy all the technical requirements, but Carl Reiner contributed a great deal. Really? So, oh, yeah. Huh. What do you think makes writing so kind of horrible, yet irresistible to do? What's that? What's the question? Well, I would like to be able to write, but 
all I got is like half-baked ideas and stuff. So I always, I'm like, why do I want to do this? So I'm kind of wondering, why is it so hard to write? Well, for one thing, Kaz, when you do this, when you, when you decide you're going to write, um, I mean, I, I, luckily I decided that, you know, when I was in high school. So I've, I've always been a writer, you know, mm. since, since I was a kid. But the thing about writing is there's no substitute for just doing it. Even, and, and, and this is my advice to writers when they face a writer's block. I mean, you're facing a little bit of a writer's block, right? You, you have ideas, you, you start to write them and then something happens and you don't. Is that right? Is that a fair description? Yeah, it's hard uh, to life, become invested in an idea because I know it's going to take so much effort to just overcome the hurdle of motivation. Yeah. Well, here's there's, there's, no, there's no substitute for doing the work, for actually writing. But there is a, a lovely set of preliminary steps that you can take. And I have a cartoon on my wall that shows a, a writer type saying... Okay, sharpen pencils, fresh paper, typewriter, uh, hot coffee, room is the right temperature. Maybe the room is too warm. Oh, no. That's the rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> Three hours so, so, um, But I find that one of the, depending on what you're writing, uh, are you writing fiction or yeah. first-person memoir or what? I, I'd like to write something that I can draw because that's my primary thing. That okay, I so, so you're writing a well-recognized genre, the graphic novel. Uh, there are some wonderful practitioners. Alan Moore in England is fabulous. Um, so what you do, what I, what I do, and I find this very, very helpful, is I begin by outlining what it is I want to write. It's a movie, it's a short story, a poem. I, I, I make an outline. I say, okay, I got to start with this. And it's this, see, essentially it's that same job of assembling the pencils and the pad and everything. You put all the stuff together you need and then you start writing. Uh, and I find, and I even printed a bunch of three by five file cards with this line from Dickens right at the top. This is from David Copperfield. All the chapters in David Copperfield and Dickens begin with the words, in which. In, in which? which we meet young David Copperfield. In which mm. Mr. McCauver has a revelation. In which things go missing and are found again. Okay. So you'd start with a, a file card that says, in which. And then you write in hand on that file card in which I introduce myself and this project. Okay, you've got number one of an outline. And number two, you go, um, Do you know me in the early years. And then you go, okay, now I'm going to talk about my parents and my family. And three is my education. Now, these are all cards. I mean, and it's a logical progression. You're not violating, you're not digging deep into the well of creativity. You're just going, you're just writing down some practical steps that you need to take in order to tell your story. And these stories, these steps will eventually make up the story. So eventually you have an outline. You have either three cards or 10 cards or 20 cards, and you pin them up on a cork board and you look at them or you tape them to the wall 
you lay them out on the dining room table or you put them on the floor. You look at you look at the outline, you kind of you see the shape of what it is you're doing. And in my case, I reduce that to a text file in words, you know, in, in my regular word processing program. Then I, I do it actually, I think I do it as a PDF. In any case, then I open my screenwriting software, because I'm usually writing a screenplay. But I can just as easily open Word, Microsoft Word, and there's the there's the outline right at the top. It's the first thing in the document. Then I I look at the first thing in the document and I write that. I put that. I start writing over it, and when I finish writing the complete version of step one, I delete step one from the document. So I've got the finished step one and the rest of the document are the steps that are remaining and you slowly go down every step writing it out deleting it as you go and at the end you've got a finished screenplay or a finished short story or a finished poem you're you're done because you followed your steps and then you know if, if as you progress you see that you know maybe this a different way you want to go or the, the story takes a sideways turn all right so you accommodate that change and in, in, incorporate it into the outline. And you know, maybe you have to renumber your cards, one through 20. But eventually, you, you will always have you know, 20 cards minus what you've already written. So it'll be screenplay, 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 card, 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 card. Screenplay, 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 card, card. Screenplay, 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 screenplay. Only one card left. Screenplay, no card left. You're done with your screenplay. Wow. Sounds simple, but that process could take months. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 I mean, she's the smarter writer than me. Honestly, but I'm just the guy who's like, much, so. yeah. Just, but there's no substitute. And, and when you hit writer's block, yeah, you keep writing. Maybe you're not writing your story anymore, mm. but you write a you know a shopping list. You write. A letter to a friend. You answer some tweets that you've been not paying attention to. <laughs> just yeah. write anything. Just just keep putting words on paper, and then eventually you get back to your original purpose, the story you're working on. Do you ever find that logic gets in, um, can get in the way of a cool idea? Uh, no, because I'm a big believer that um, it all has to make sense in one way or another. Yeah. So now it is true that in in your fictional world, you can change the laws. You know, you can change the rules of physics. You can change the laws of of time. You know, if it's a time travel story, you can get caught up in the in the paradoxes. Uh, but but you have to, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's part of the problems you face. But you can you can face them. You, you, but you there, there has to be an internal logic. Yes. One, you know, if one character explodes when they're touched with water, then you can't touch that character with water ever again without having them explode. So be careful how you employ that device. Mm. And then and realize that you're creating a universe in which people can explode when they contact water. So, the, you know, that becomes part of your overall framework of this universe that you're writing about. Most of us write about a universe very similar to our own, but if you're writing science fiction or horror or fantasy or, or uh, uh, utopian or, or dystopian novels, 
there there has to be an internal logic. Either you know, like if you're shot, you're dead, or unless you can be revived. And if so, what are the rules for revival? And there, you know, in games, they're all pretty clear, but <clears throat> you have to make it up as you go along. But you're kind of writing your own video game, wow. and they have rules. Everything True. has rules. True. So you have to be consistent with your internal logic. Yeah. I get caught up in that personally. Like I don't know how to, how people well, deal with it. One of your distractions, and it's funny, I think sociologists or psychologists call it displacement activity. It's something you do out of nervous habit when you don't want to be doing what you're doing. For a lot of people, it's, it's grooming or uh, uh, dusting or the dishes or doing the laundry. Just, you know, you do something. You can find yourself doing stuff. Uh, you know, don't let it distract you. And remember that it has to have an internal logic to it. When did you first learn, like, that you had to set up rules? You said you've been writing since you were a child. Is there any lesson where you're like, okay, I have to remember this for later on? Oh, yeah. I I was always a verbal kid. I tested, you know, off the charts on my SATs. I I was very smart. I had a huge vocabulary. I cannot remember when I could not read. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, when I was four years old, I was reading, and I read voraciously and omnivorously and read everything. So I always was comfortable around, you know, reading and writing. But in college, I could not afford to pay someone to type my papers. Mm-hmm. So I discovered Caraceable Bond. It's a kind of paper that you can erase easily and type over. Oh, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Free computer. So IBM Selectric also made a typewriter with a white a white out ribbon as part of the ribbon, so you can clean up as you go. So I discovered traceable bond and and what they called carbon sets, which is a cover a top sheet and two carbons yeah. bound together. So you put them in a typewriter and you're creating three copies as you type. Right, right, right yeah. So I, I discovered these aids yeah. and realized. If I outline carefully and follow my outline, I will not have to ever retype. Oh, okay. So my first draft is actually what I'm going to hand in. So it's got to be on good paper. It's got to be presentable. It's got to have the right margins. It's got to have clean typing, no typos, no no stupid spelling grammar errors. So that's 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 what I would try to create and get it right the first time. So. In college, I learned if you outline carefully, you don't have to retype your paper 10 times. And that was of primary importance to me that I did not have to retype. Do you think that taught you, like, let me try to say this question. It taught me the value of outlining, the value of sticking to the outline, and the pleasure of knowing that when you finished writing the actual physical document you were handling, you were done. You didn't have to go back. You know, maybe you had to make a trip to the Xerox place to get it copied. Yeah. But, you know, uh, that was it. Yeah, I know exactly what you have. You're giving me a flashback of college myself. (laughs) Except you didn't have, you know, typewriter. I didn't have a typewriter, but it was one of those you handed in. One professor, I remember she, I handed in a paper to her, and if it was 10 pages or 100 pages, she always wanted a rewrite or something or whatever it was. Like, no, rewrite this, rewrite this. If you did everything, you probably ended up with an A, but man. Awesome was out, you know, know where you're going when you start. Have at yeah. least an idea of the 
ending. I, I remember I was writing a book. Yeah. And I had written a foreword, or, uh, and then the book's st structure dictated a different beginning. So I, I started, you know, I started the book and was writing it, writing it, writing it. And it was a long book, a lot of research, a lot of interviews. And then when I got close to the end, I just had one chapter left, which was essentially going to be a, you know, a summary before the index, you know, saying, you know, basically my book is done. Yeah. And then I was starting to write it. I said, wait a second. I wrote a foreword, which essentially is this chapter. It, was, it summed up where I was going. It was what I, my intentions were. Yeah. It was all in the foreword. So let me just go back into my computer, find that file, because it was a separate file. Mm -hmm. And I copied and pasted it into the manuscript, the last chapter. I just took the old forward, put it at the end, changed the grammar a little bit. And I remember I ex and when it dropped in place, I remember exclaiming out loud, like looking at the screen like this, like, wow, ah, I'm done. It was like in one stroke of copy and, you know, copy and paste, I was done. I was anticipating another two weeks of work, but no, it was finished. What I wrote to start was a perfect ending. Wow. I mean, it doesn't happen all the time, but when it does, it's a blessing, or as we say in, in Yiddish, it's a vachaya. <laughs> <laughs> now, I want to ask you, of course, you know, we're going to ask about Jaws a little bit. What I understand is that you came in to revamp the script. Yeah, you read the Jaws log, I right? did, yes. Yeah. You know, and one of the stories uh, is... That, one of, one of the you read one of the newer editions, not the original, right? Uh, the newest one, yeah. Okay. Yeah, the newest one that's out. And I understand you came in to revamp the script, and um, Steven Spielberg was really having you on his mind. And, you know, what was what was the first few days like when you saw what they had? And then you're like, how can I put this back together to make it more cohesive? Well, I, I, you know, Steven sent me a copy of the script, Yeah. wrote on the cover, Eviscerate It. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, so I, I took the script. I read it. That was a Sackler draft. Yeah. Second Sackler draft. I read it. And I wrote a long memo because I knew this was probably a, a real job. You know, this this because I don't do this for everybody. But I, I wrote a memo, a detailed memo, two, three single-spaced pages of my reactions to the script. And I made a, a great prediction, and I made a incredibly wrong prediction. The wrong, the thing that I got wrong, I objected. I said, why, why does the girl have to go swim? Why, why does the, 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 the sexually liberated young woman get killed and eaten in the first, you know, that's so horror movie cliche. You're, you're a teenager. Right. You have sex, yeah. You die. You know, yeah. It seems right. to be the role. Yeah. So, you know, you know, I said, this is such a horror movie cliche. Little did I know how effectively Stephen would film that scene, you know. Right. So that was my wrong guess. My right guess, and this was 46 years ago, 1974. Right. 47 years ago. I said, if we do our jobs right, rewriting the script I'm talking about, mm -hmm. we do our jobs right, 
people will feel about going in the water the way they felt about taking a shower after cycle. Yeah, yeah. I, and for the next 46 years, whenever I meet somebody and I tell them that I've wrote Jaws, they go, you know, when I saw that movie, I wouldn't go in the lake, in the water. <laughs> They always have to tell me about how they wouldn't go in the water. And I nod and I smile. Yes, I know, I know. But I've heard this from people. It was such an impactful horror movie, you know, to just go through with it. And it, you know, it, did you, did, was there any vibe or did you feel anything like this was going to be really, really super big when you were going through it? No, nobody did. Huh. It was a job. Yeah. Difficult location job on an expensive location. It there is. was lots of technical problems. Yeah, you know, it was at the time it was it was a job. Yeah, and it wasn't until the picture was finished editing and was playing, you know, just to technical, you know. Our first scene, the first time we had an inkling that something was special was when the guys at the lab at Technicolor who were grading the film just for color temperature, mm -hmm. when the shark came out of the water for the first time, the guys in the lab jumped. <laughs> really? And, you know, those guys, to them, it's just all sausage. You know, it's, like, yeah. you know, it's all raw material. They're, looking at, they're not looking at what we're looking at in the frame, but they it got them. The content got to them. Wow. Oh. Okay, if the lab guys are impressed, that's something. And then the first time it played in a public preview to a paying audience, yeah. the reaction was clearly un you know, unusually good. So yeah. we got a sense that we had a popular picture. So then after two very successful previews, Universal changed the distribution plan. did the first multiple screen release and the rest is history, but who knew? Really? Nobody. Wow. You often keep, how much we, we thought at best after the successful previews, we said, okay, this is going to be a good summer popcorn movie. You know, no, no, nothing to be ashamed of here. And then it opened and it sure enough, it, you know, it did hugely well. And then it did better and then better and better. And the grosses kept climbing, and they didn't fall off after Labor Day. They kept building. And so slowly we overtook every other top-grossing picture until we were number one of all time, adjusting for inflation. I mean, the Gone with the Wind and Birth of a Nation were always one and two, but there we were. And then, of course, Spielberg would wind up with four or five movies in the top ten of all time because he was as, you know, one of a he was the Da Vinci, the dream, the, the genius. He was, you know, the, the one of a kind creative force. I always heard he was very low key in person. Is that true? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. He, he gave a slightly shy appearance. Uh, he always was good with the crew. He always knew what he wanted. He could always tell you. How much do you keep your uh, potential audience uh, in mind while you're working on a script? Um, very rarely. I mean, I don't think you don't think about what's the audience going to say. You got to first of all, you got to create a perfect work, and then when you've done that, then you can worry about the audience. But you got to you got to make it right, and it's 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 uh, 
it's silly to try to make a make a film for the first one you don't know what the audience wants I mean, you know, and i'm i'm lucky i've been an actor and i've worked in front of audiences a lot i've spent a lot of time improvising so if i say something and the expectation is going to be funny i'm pretty sure it is yeah. because i've had the, i've no, i've had the training you know i mean i can look at a script and read it and say okay there's there's going to be an audience <clears throat> there'll be an audience reaction here there'll be laugh here <clears throat> but every now and then when you see something play in front of an audience for the first time the audience tells you where the laughs are you don't you know holy shit i never i never laughed there but Every time we show it to a room full of people, they all laugh at this one spot. So I must, that must be funny. So over the, over a lifetime, you accumulate a lot of those experiences. You go, okay, I, okay, I know what's funny. You know, I'm, I'm pretty confident that this, this will play. So experience definitely is your biggest teacher then. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't have to worry. Excuse me. Oh, no. I don't have to worry if something's going to play. Yeah. Uh, I kind, I kind of know it will, and I'm not always right. I mean, you can't, you can't second guess the audience. They, right. You put thirty. I don't know what the number is. <coughs> I don't know if it's eight or twelve or twenty or a hundred. You put a hundred strangers in a room who've paid their, for their admission. Paying is important, mm -hmm. and their collective intelligence is greater than yours. You cannot have yeah. that degree of intelligence because this is 30 disparate minds with 30 different backstories and life stories, all bringing their personal experience to bear on what they're, this one thing that they're watching. And when they laugh, you can be sure it's funny. If they don't laugh and two or three different audiences don't laugh at the same place, yeah. You go, okay, that's not funny. Cut uh, it. All right. It's not working. Yeah. But the audience tells you. You don't tell them. They tell you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things I think, you know, you mentioned your acting. My dad would be really angry if I didn't ask you about one. You were Ugly John and MASH. Yes, that's uh, that's one of his one of my favorite TV series. But the but the um. I, I've heard I was that the feature. I was in the feature, not the TV show. Right, right. Yeah, I know it's with the uh, with the movie, but I was told like the, with the improvising that it the, the the chaos on set drove the the writers and the director nuts because everybody was just making up lines. <laughs> well, it didn't drive the director nuts. He encouraged it. Oh, okay. That was all, that was Altman's directorial style. Yeah. Ring Lardner Jr., who wrote the screenplay, yeah, wanted to take his name off it. Oh, right. until, until it was nominated for an Academy Award, then he said, "Oh yeah, I wrote that." So, <laughs> he was mortified. He hated what the actors were doing, and he hated the fact that Altman was encouraging them because we were all making shit up. <laughs> and and it, it did change the course of the film. Yeah. There's a, uh, and in a couple of places you can see some footage that was originally shot from. The original script that you know it's just shoehorned in it doesn't you know, you know uh, right yeah there there is a lot of yeah there is a lot of chaos in it that i see and i like i haven't seen it in a very very long time well it, there was a unifying intelligence which was all 
and then he did develop some techniques that were very helpful to him. Uh, he did a lot of the group scenes. Right. He shot them with the camera fairly far back and on a telephoto lens. So he could shoot the whole group. And then as we were ad-libbing or stuff was happening, he would whisper to the cameraman who to zoom in on. Yeah. Get a single or get a two-shot or get a reaction shot. And we never knew who he was on. So the you know we were spared the the actors indignity of knowing that you're it's somebody else's close up and whatever you do is not going to be on the screen when the time comes. But you you never knew if you were going to be on the screen or not. Right. So you just you, you just pay play. attention. I mean, all actors should pay attention all the time, but many times it's uh, an actor's flaw instead of listening to the other actor. Yeah. You can see this. Uh, Sometimes an actor is just waiting for his turn to speak. Right. And is not engaged with the other actor. But with Altman's way of shooting, we were always engaged with each other. We had to be because, you know, we weren't getting any guidance. And you didn't know in advance what the other actor was going to say or do. So you had to be prepared. And that put you on your toes and made you alert and gave you a heightened sense of being in the now, in the present. Boy, I better listen to what this guy's saying. I better respond appropriately or I'm going to wind up on the cutting room floor. Yeah. How'd you have improv classes, huh? Yes. <laughs> the, yes, and. The, the absolute yes, and, yeah. The, yeah. That's the ultimate yes, and exercise. Yeah. What would what has been your favorite role to play overall? Oh, boy. Well, the problem is I'm not a leading man. I'm not even a well-known character actor. So I've never had a really good part yeah. where you know, I've never been a star yeah. or even a lead. So I can only guess at what, what it would be like. I know I wouldn't be an asshole. I wouldn't be making demands of my production assistants. I wouldn't want a big trailer. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I have a lot of false modesty, but it's modesty nonetheless. If, if I could, you know, have a wish. Yeah. I would love to be able to do Cyrano de Bergerac. Nice. Would you be Cyrano? And in the Brian in the Brian Hooker translation. Wow. Would you be Cyrano himself? Yes, I, that's that's that would be my dream role. It's a big, you know, it's one of the best roles in, in movies. Wow. And in, in, in drama. Wow. Wow. I. That's 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 interesting. That's 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 quite. That I didn't expect that answer. <laughs> that's just really good. Uh, Flashback to Muppet Babies because they did an episode that involved footage from a movie version. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I've been, I've been thinking about some of your roles, like uh, there's obvious Iron Balls McGinley from The Jerk. Yeah, and um, there's a small bit role that I, I cannot remember the name, but the, the in the first Jaws, with uh, you played the guy who was trying to direct the crowd everywhere after the yeah, uh, I was playing Meadows. The Meadows, yes, yeah, so that's I can never remember. Yeah. It always it, it it always seemed to me the impression I got was it was it might have been the inspiration might have been just you trying to make sure the script was correct. Um, well, no, I I knew what the purpose of the scene was. Yeah, and I knew what what my function was. Yeah, as both as an actor and as a creator of the movie. Yeah, and 
and I was in this u- unique position is I'm, you know, I'm on a set with all these actors and this big, this big stinking fish. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, uh, my character would do exactly what I did. Yeah. I mean, I was doing what the character would do. Yeah. And I was ad-libbing like crazy because it wasn't time to you know, write all this stuff, nor was there time to write responses for them. Yeah. So I just jumped in and started talking. And then the result is what you see. I love it. I oh, loved it. I loved it. I loved it. Do you have any thoughts on writing adaptations? Oh, sure. I, 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 uh, I've done a lot of those. A lot of my jobs have been rewrites. And uh, they're kind of difficult because not only do you have to do an outline, like, like in general, <clears throat> but you have to stop. Before you start, you've got to outline the thing you're rewriting. Yeah. yeah. And that's really tedious work. It's not creative at all. You're just taking an existing story and going, you know, card one, card two, card three, and breaking it down into its components. Right. And you can't proceed without those cards. And they're hell to do. You just have to grit your teeth, get through the edit, get through the material, outline it as best you can, and then put the original material aside and attack the outline and say, okay, now I can do this, I can do that. I mustn't forget to include this information. I can forget about that information. In the case of Jaws, we had all the subplots with the mafia and the real estate development out, concentrate on the three men in a boat and a shark. So we had, you know, sometimes the work defines itself, but you never know. But an adaptation, an adaptation involves extra work. So be prepared when you when you when you accept an adaptation. Be aware that the first week or month or six months is going to be spent on tedious, work, non-productive but necessary work. How do you know what to leave in or cut out or modify? Well, <clears throat> every writer should be able to tell a long-form joke. Because in a long-form joke, you have all the elements of a narrative. You have a setup, you have a complication, and then you have a surprise finish that provokes a laugh, right? So if you can tell a joke, you can figure out what, what to use and what not to use. But it helps if you have a narrative sense. You know, oh... Think of all the stories that you've ever loved that you've read, whether it was Count of Monte Cristo or Magnificent Seven. You know, pick pick a screen property or literary property that you love and think about its structure. Because normally when you're reading for enjoyment, you're, you, you, you try not to be aware of structure. That's not, you, know, that's, mm. you don't want to be analytical. You want to surrender to the story experience. You want to surrender to the to the narrative flow. But when you're working, when you're analyzing that narrative flow, you have to pay attention to what the components are. Say, oh, wait a second, this is suspenseful. Now now I want to know what comes next. Good. Or this is not suspenseful, but it's necessary information for four cards from now when the character has to know where the villain lives. You know, so we have to include the card, the card that shows the villain at home. 
you know. So it's all it's all self determining, but you you kind of have to have a, a narrative sense, which as a writer you will have because that's part of the definition of who is a writer. Is your temperament suited to the writing craft? Not everybody's a writer. So I, the question that comes up in my mind now is what do you think is the best joke you ever wrote? I don't know. That's all right. <laughs> there's, so, there's, so, there's, there's so many. Is it, is it kind of like picking your favorite child? Yeah, it's a Sophie's Choice kind of a thing. I got gotcha. you. Okay, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense, yeah. Do you have a favorite genre to write in? You mentioned a lot. Yeah, I kind of like... Uh, Kind of like High Adventure. My favorite script that I wrote, will never see the light of day, <clears throat> is a, a great big tentpole movie, you know, with multiple stars. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it needs, you know, Russell Crowe and Jiban Hansu and Meryl Streep and, mm-hmm. uh, it needs all kinds of people. It's a, it's a film about Somali pirates. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. Okay. Oh, wow. It's a pirate movie. Yeah. I'm intrigued. And, and, and the prologue was, it was a perfect prologue yeah. to this day. Why? Why? <clears throat> you open on a prow of a boat cutting through the sea. Voice over. From time immemorial, men have plowed the seas in search of trade and plunder and commerce. Pan up to reveal the boat. It's kind of a dirty boat, dirty man. It could be could be any time. Could be Phoenician to second century BC. It could be you know now it could be could be whatever. And then the camera widens out and you realize okay the boat has a motor and this is not some historic Viking raiding party. This is happening right now. And then on the horizon appears a freighter, a modern freighter, and they're headed toward the freighter. And you realize they're going to board it, and they're pirates. And, you know, that, that starts the movie. Ooh. They board the ship, and things ensue. <laughs> <laughs> I like this. <laughs> well, it's, a, it's a terrific movie, but it's it's a, it's a big production deal. You need like seven stars. Big Ocean's Eleven style ensemble. Yeah, you need an ensemble. Big, yeah, big ensemble and coastal Africa. You got to shoot on the water a lot, which is yeah. complicated. There's uh, helicopter footage. There's gun Not battles cheap. at sea. There's boarding. Yeah. Boarding, boarding an ocean liner. There's, there's a lot of stuff. Wow. Well, um, we want to round this one off because I think we've kept you a lot and you've also, you've been wonderful. Um, but I would say, um, for everybody, I would like to end this with what is the best life advice that you would want to give somebody? On a macro scale, I have two rules of life that have suited me well. Number one, number one rule in life is it's supposed to be fun. It's not always fun. I mean, you don't always have a good time, but it's supposed to be fun. Right. If you're making choices based on, is this going to be okay? Is this going to be fun? You know, you won't go wrong. It's 
Number one, it's supposed to be fun. Number two, every now and then things go the way they're supposed to. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the cab is there on time, the plane leaves on time, there's a seat, there's, you know, the, the, uh, the, you find a wallet in the street, the owner gives you a reward. I mean, there's all the, you know, all these things that every now and then they go the way they're supposed to and, and yeah. everybody, everybody wins. You know, again, not all the time, but it's, you know, it's, you make an effort, you know, it's supposed to be fun. Every now and then things work out the way they're supposed to. Yeah. That's my rules of life. Oh, it's wonderful. And if, and, and if you approach life that way, you won't be, you know, you, so that's my life advice. No, it's wonderful. Make, make it, don't, you know, make it fun. Try to do only things that you like to do and, uh, be prepared for when good things happen. Take advantage of them and don't, don't overthink it. Yeah. You know, just cash the lottery ticket. Be well. <laughs> I appreciate that. Really, that's, that's great. Well, I mean, for us from Movie Theater Time Machine, this has been, I think, one of the pleasures of a lifetime, really, just getting a chance to chat with you for a while. I am, I am flattered. Thank you. Thank you for it. Um, for all of us from Movie Theater Time Machine, we always want to say be good, take care of yourself, but don't be too good. This has been our conversation with Carl Gottlieb. You have yourself an amazing one, and thanks for listening.